hello everyone and thank you for joining us for On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. My name is Kevin Drooley and I'm Associate Editor with Safety and Health. With me as always are fellow Associate Editors Alan Ferguson and Barry Botino. It is May and we're podcasting to you from our respective homes as our team continues to work remotely. Wherever you're listening to us today, we send our sincere thanks for spending some time with us. We hope everyone out there is safe and healthy. We also want to send a special shout out to the safety professionals who are doing their very best every single day to keep workers healthy and safe during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you'd like to keep up with the latest news on COVID-19 and other daily updates from around the safety world, please check out our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. We also have a brand new website for our sister publication, Family Safety and Health. You can find us at safetyandhealthmagazine.com family to learn all about safety away from work. This month's episode is sponsored by Blackline Safety. We appreciate their support and look forward to telling you a bit more about the organization shortly. During this month's episode, we'll dust off that scuba gear and take a deep dive with Alan by examining a story from the May issue of Safety and Health as Alan discusses the oft-heard term competent person and what employers need to know about it. In our Five Questions With interview segment, we'll catch up with Jim Spigener of DECRA to talk about the ROI, or return on investment of safety. And of course, stay tuned for our pop quiz, when we tip our caps to this month's National Teacher Day and talk about educators who have made an imprint on our lives. With that, let's get this episode rolling. Every month here at On the Safe Side, we take an in-depth look at a story from the pages of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. In the latest issue of Safety and Health, Alan writes about the role of the competent person on a worksite. So who is that, and what makes them competent, and what requirements does OSHA expect of them? Well, Alan has all those answers and more, so why don't you take us a little deeper into your reporting on this topic, Alan? So competent person is a phrase that appears in a number of OSHA standards, namely those in construction and maritime. It also appears in four subparts of the general industry standards and in gear certification. That's 29 CFR 1919. So what does competent person mean to OSHA? Because from what I've heard, it can prove a little confusing to employers. I mean, we all like to be thought of as a competent person rather than the opposite. But in general, OSHA defines it as one who is capable of identifying existing and predictable hazards in the surroundings or working conditions which are unsanitary, hazardous, or dangerous to employees and who has the authorization to take prompt corrective measures to eliminate them. And the key parts of that definition are the capability of identifying hazards and the authority to correct them. And for the first part of that, there are no specific qualifications or training needed. OSHA doesn't put those kinds of limits on it. Our colleague Richard Fairfax, a former deputy assistant secretary at OSHA, said, as long as the individual knows and understands the hazards and knows and understands what to do about them, And this leads into one way that OSHA might find that an employer is lacking a competent person, and that's job site conditions. I uh, talked with one former OSHA inspector who said he would do surveillance on a job site before officially going on the premises. And if he saw things like damaged cords or employees not wearing PPE or workers not maintaining three points of contact while climbing ladders, that's pretty good evidence that an employer doesn't have a competent person or an effective one. The same former OSHA inspector said he might then interview a few selected contractors, a roofer, an electrician, or a plumber, you know, at all. 
And he said, the first thing I would ask is, who is the competent person? He said, the next thing I would say is, what are you competent in? Who gave you authority to be the competent person? What authority do you have? And this goes into the second and perhaps the key part of OSHA's competent person. Do you have the authority to stop work or make corrections on a job site? If you have to get permission or ask someone else, you don't have the required authority and therefore you're not a competent person by OSHA standards. Alan, what are some other ways that employers may not understand OSHA's competent person or maybe some issues that they may run into? One issue that Fairfax said is oftentimes employers will think that competent person simply means the most senior person at a job site or the workplace. But as I described, it's a little more nuanced. Another issue is not designating a backup competent person in case the main competent person is out for the day or away from the job site or workplace for whatever reason, when an OSHA inspector shows up. There's also knowing if you need a competent person in more than one subject. For example, a roofing company might need a competent person in fall protection, but if that same company uses scaffolds, it would need one in that subject as well. The good news is that one employee can act as a competent person for those different subjects. That means an employer needs to anticipate and learn all the areas and times when they may need a competent person. So, Alan, OSHA has different terms that they use along with competent person, such as qualified, certified, or authorized. Can you explain the differences in those terms? Sure. Those terms can be confusing, Fairfax says. So here they are. Qualified, that's a person who through education or experience has successfully demonstrated the ability to resolve problems related to a particular job or subject matter. Examples of this are journeyman electricians or journeyman plumbers. Certified, that's an employee who has passed a certification exam from an accredited organization, such as a CSP or a CIH. And authorized is a person assigned by an employer to perform specific duties or be at a specific location or locations at a job site. Well, great. Thanks a bunch, Alan, for sharing the valuable insights with us into this story. If you want to read more, please check out Alan's feature article on the competent person and other features and news from around the safety world by checking out our May issue of Safety and Health Magazine, or you can visit us online. We are at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Now we'd like to tell you about the sponsor for this month's episode, Blackline Safety. At the end of the day, chances are someone is counting on you to return home safely. That's why Blackline Safety works so hard to protect those working in hazardous environments. Leading the way in connected safety, Blackline protects workers in any industry in any part of the world. Whether it's hazardous gases, injuries, weather, health events, or any other potential danger, Blackline provides a lifeline to teams, loan workers, and fire-slash-hazmat crews around the globe. Through technology, innovation, and a commitment to safety, Blackline ensures safety like no one else. Learn more at blacklinesafety.com. Workplace injuries and fatalities cost the U.S. economy billions of dollars each year, but experts tell us that saving strategies exist, including investing in training and equipment as a means to foster safer workplaces. For managers and executives who might need convincing about the prospect of investing more in safety, knowing how much workplace injuries cost can help build a case for employers. But that figure, while an important one, is just the beginning of the discussion on the return on investment of safety. In this installment of our Five Questions With interview segment, we're joined by Jim Spigener, Chief Client Officer at Dacre Organizational Safety and Reliability, who offers his expertise on ROI. 
Jim, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much, Kevin. I appreciate being with you guys and uh, having the opportunity to uh, talk about a, a subject that is so important. Just what are some starting points when building a case for showing the economic benefits of safety? One would be to look at your user rate and your workman's comp costs, what we call the uh, non-direct costs that uh, you're spending on this kind of stuff. And then the second thing you want to think about is what's the impact of having these kinds of events has on your reputation, your standing in the community, and those kinds of things. So the, I think to get a good handle on that first is step one. Well, Jim, I've got a two-part question here for you. First of all, we wanted to ask how do you measure ROI of safety in a way that's convincing? And then how would you then report those results to your relevant stakeholders? Well, that's a very interesting and, and quite a complex question. So having been in the safety consulting business now myself for 31 years and literally working with several thousand companies, the amount that you spend on injuries is and workman's comp and all that stuff is is likely to be less than what you're spending on safety. So if you're looking for a, if I spend a dollar on safety, I'm going to get a dollar and a half back. When you start to understand what you can get from safety, then it becomes really clear the benefits that an employer or a business or a leader can get out of it. For example, learning to do safety well teaches reliability to the organization. It teaches the organization how to anticipate, how to plan which shows up on the productivity, reliability, profitability side of the house, probably as well or, or better than it does safety side of the house. The other thing that shows up that a lot of leaders don't take into account is the retention. People don't like to work in a place where they believe they're going to be injured or they have to watch other people be injured. And they also like to think that the organization they're working for cares about them. And so there's a pretty big retention value and discretionary effort of value from doing safety and doing it well. And I know that those benefits far outweigh the cost that a leader is trying to justify when they do a work in safety. And then the last thing that I'll talk a little bit about here that's really important is the cultural side. What we know is that when you put in place the cultural elements that are necessary to have good safety performance, you have high performance, period. So we did a very large research project a few years ago where we were trying to figure out what's the impact of culture on safety. And what we found out was the impact on culture and safety is exactly the same as the impact on culture and profitability and productivity. In other words, things that you can put in place culturally the attributes that you can develop using safety create high performance on the operations side of the house in a really big way. Those are the kinds of things that a lot of leaders haven't really sat down and thought about and, and looked into the research on. But as the industry gets better and better and better and better at controlling injuries, it also becomes the case that in most cases, they allocate more resource to safety. So the strict Injury cost, dollar allocation cost becomes a harder case to make for the executive. One other thing that's important to executives these days is they really don't like the feeling that they get when they hurt a lot of people in their organization. I guess living your values is a really important return, as big a return in a lot of cases as money is. 
What about an employer who doesn't immediately buy in? How do you sell it further to that employer or perhaps someone like a supervisor? What's really interesting is if you understand the behavioral sciences, what you understand is that behavior leads beliefs. And so in, in cases where I have people going, ah, I don't know about this, I don't, you know, I don't know if we want to take this on, and, or I don't know if we need to really improve, what I try to do is get them to take a very small step. And the step I try to get them to take, whether it be a supervisor or a senior leader, engages them. It's not one that they turn over to someone else, but it's something they can do. And I try to stay away from them having to spend money to do it. In other words, something they personally can do. And the more they do, the more it changes their beliefs and their values for that. And so that's one strategy. The second strategy is to show them the research. There is absolutely concrete research out there that says if you develop the cultural attributes and the safety performance in your company that the research shows you will, you get the exact same performance on the productivity and profitability side. And a lot of leaders have not seen that research. And it's rock solid. It shows that the exact same attributes give you both. And so I tell leaders, you really want and recognize that people are the weakest link in your system. And you want them to perform at the very highest level. Research shows that creating a strong safety culture with nine attributes to that culture produces much higher performance in every metric that you can measure. I try to do two things, get them engaged. And at the same time, I try to educate them because in most cases, it's not that they don't care. It's that they, you know, they're having to manage both the business and manage something like safety and environmental and quality and all these other things. And they have limited resources. So when I can show them how they can improve safety and get the other things at the same time and create higher retention more discretionary effort and all those things, it generally becomes something that's pretty exciting to them. How about success stories, Jim? Um, what examples can you give of proven safety and health interventions from employers that have helped reduce injury risks and lowered incident rates? We did a project 10 years ago where a, a chemical company called us up and they said, we have multiple sites in North America. We have five of them. And one of them is not horrible, but they clearly are, are not as good as the other three. And the fifth one, it, we're thinking about shutting it down. And the only reason we don't shut it down is because the cleanup costs would be higher than the losses that we're taking on poor productivity, poor quality, and all of that. So we, we're keeping it running because we don't want to have to go in and do the environmental remediation that we would have to do if we shut it down. We change managers out. We've done all kinds of things at that site. We're just, you know, kind of at our wits end. They said, what do you recommend? And I said, well, let's do an organizational functioning assessment. Let's find out where the organization is functioning poorly first. Let's look at these attributes that I talked about earlier. So we measured them and nothing of those nine attributes scored above the 50th percentile of other companies that have taken that same attribute assessment. And that was only in one dimension of the nine. The others were in the single digit percentiles, meaning more than 90% of the companies we had ever given that assessment to scored better than them, more than 90%. 
And what we found was that what they had was a cultural problem. We developed a strategy and one of the dimensions that's really critical is called management credibility. And so what we did is instead of changing out managers again, which they had done multiple times, which actually caused a weakening of the culture because once you know that the manager above you is going to be changed out every year or two, why would you sign up to do anything? That was the lowest scoring dimension they had was management credibility. What we did was, let's take this manager and let's find a project that he can begin to develop credibility on. So it turns out they had an area where when you came in, you change clothes, put on the company's clothes, go out, work in the chemicals, come back, take the company clothes, which were contaminated with the chemicals off, take a shower, put your street clothes on and go home. That area was in horrific, horrific condition. And so we had that manager announce that he was going to upgrade that for the employees. That didn't have anything to do with safety, really. But they did a major upgrade on that area, spent about 300000 at that time, which was a significant amount of money. The second thing they were going to do was get the employees to participate in some audits they were doing. They were going to actually have the hourly employees participate with managers. We did that, and we took very careful care to make sure that everything on those audits were followed up on by management. And inside of a year, we took that culture from single digit percentiles in all nine of those dimensions up into the mid range, the 40 to 60 percentile. And their injury rate went from seven times greater than the best site they had to second place in that year, just by recognizing that we needed to start to fix the culture Do something that caused management credibility to improve so that they would believe when management said something that they meant it, which is one of those dimensions. And then we began to work on the other dimensions. We did an engagement process with audit. We put in a behavioral safety process in that organization. We helped them uh, work on serious injury and fatality prevention, and we engaged the hourly employees in that. And within a year, we had made a significant difference in that organization. And by the third year, this company was actually the number two producer in the company. It was a classic case study of a company using safety to turn the whole organization around to become a much better organization. And at the same time, dropping their injury rate from a jaw-dropping eight to less than one. This stuff really works if you set your mind to do it and if you understand what the research tells us about how to go about it. Safety is just one of those things that everybody has a stake in, everybody can buy into. It says a lot about the company's ethics, integrity, their respect for the employees. And if you do this right, you can improve every one of those dimensions. Well, Jim, as I'm sure you're well aware, COVID-19 has impacted the way we all work. And I was curious, what extent have COVID-19 consideration changed the landscape of the ROI of safety? I think in the short term, it actually improved it. And what I mean by that is face-to-face safety meetings, training sessions, all of those things went to more virtual type of sessions. Travel costs to bring people to training and all of that stuff went away. We learned to work virtually. And because safety is a unique initiative, and what I mean by that is wherever you are in safety, if you stop doing anything tomorrow, you've got a significant glide path before you start to see degradation. Safety is not one of those things that's an immediate cause and effect. The distance between doing something unsafely and having an injury is pretty wide. Whereas the the distance between not 
paying attention to a piece of machinery and it affecting production is pretty quick. Safety's not that way. So I think in the near term, COVID made us recognize where we can do some things that, that makes it actually easier on the employee. People have gone virtual with a lot of this stuff, and now they're actually doing virtual audits, which they can do much more frequently. They have the ability now for people in the office to be able to sit in the office and have the people that are still having to do the work outside actually send data to them, pictures, everything to them in a way that we never had before. And it forced us to use digital means to collect data better. There are a whole bunch of things that COVID did that really had a positive impact, I believe, on the ROI of safety. At the same time, I'm seeing companies worry that the amount of effort they've had to put into COVID has siphoned off some of the resource they were putting into safety. If someone catches COVID on the site, that's an occupational injury. That changes the ROI. There are also a lot of people for good reason, and they're starting to see it in their results, that the face-to-face part of safety is still critical. The part of safety where I actually have a relationship with my boss and my boss and I can interact, we can look at things together, my boss can come outside and visit, the face-to-face things that are done better have suffered. I would say the ROI, the amount that's spent for the investment has improved in one way, but I think we're getting to a place where that coast is over, that glide path that I talked about. And if we don't pretty soon figure out how to get some of that networking and face-to-face stuff back, I think it's going to show up even more dramatically in the numbers. And then that flips the ROI the exact opposite way. There's one thing that that I know for sure. I've asked, I can't tell you how many uh, CEOs, how many OSHA recordables would you be willing to accept to prevent the next life-altering or fatal injury? And they said, there is no number. I would take however many we have to have to prevent the next life-altering or fatal injury. What we're in danger of doing is losing that cohesiveness that keeps workers looking out for each other and maybe preventing somebody from doing something that caused a very catastrophic event for them. So that's that's my fear, and that's the best way I can answer that. Well, again, Jim, thank you for your time and expertise today. It's very much appreciated. For listeners looking for more on this topic, I realize we've already taken our deep dive for this episode, but if you're up for it, uh, we encourage you to plunge into the archives of the Safety and Health website and take a look at a story from our January 2019 issue covering the ROI of safety. Uh, Jim was one of the experts who spoke with the magazine for that feature, and we're grateful, as always, for his assistance. So, Jim, all the best, and thanks again. The month of May includes one very important day of recognition on the calendar, National Teachers Day, which took place on May 4th. Many of us have had that one special educator ignited our passion for the subject they taught. So we want to discuss our favorite teachers that made an impact. And I'll go first. I actually had a teacher that passed away uh, pretty recently in December. His name was John Travers. He was my honors English teacher in my freshman year of high school. And he was also my journalism instructor my senior year. 
I'd also like to give a shout out to Frau Jorinda Cox, who taught me German for four years. Even though I don't use it every day, there are times where it does come handy at random points. And I would also be remiss if I didn't mention my wrestling coach, Walt Holmes, who was very successful uh, in a school that we didn't have much athletic success beyond that. He was a really, really good coach. Kevin, how about you? Well, not unlike you, Alan, I also went with a teacher who was a freshman English teacher, Mr. Michael Peterson. He just was given his introductory spiel, and it just so happened that he was the newspaper moderator and just going into high school. And well before that, it was something I was interested in. It was a monthly publication, so a few days every month you're staying pretty well after school and going for takeout and just getting that paper out. So obviously you want to have a, a great rapport, but just very knowledgeable, encouraging, kind. And then third grade teacher, Mrs. Kathy Horan, just was very instrumental, kind of similar to Mr. Peterson, just very enthusiastic and someone who was easy to, to get along with. Barry, how about yourself? Well, guys, I'm going to make it three for three. My freshman English teacher in high school, Mr. Tallarico, was a huge impact for me. I think I always knew I wanted to write, but he really stoked that fire in me. And I remember one specific assignment, and he wanted to teach us about the impact of words and phrases And so we all came up with these phrases that were the most impactful. And he actually put them all together and submitted it to the Chicago Tribune. And it was published by the Tribune. And I remember my contribution was the closing line in that uh, column, guest column about words that have impact. And my contribution was, I do, which was pretty fun. So back to you, Alan. Now we want to hear from our listeners. Let us know a teacher who made a difference in your life by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org or check in with the hashtag SafesidePopQuiz on social media. We may even share some of your comments on a future episode of On the Safe Side. We want to say thanks to everyone out there for spending some time with us this month. And a big thank you to our sponsor for this month's episode, Black Lion Safety. You can find out all about Blackline by visiting them online at blacklinesafety.com. If you'd like to keep your employees and their family members safe away from work, check out our sister publication, Family Safety and Health, which is available at safetyandhealthmagazine.com family. You can also get a free copy by calling 800-621-7619. In the meantime, Feel free to tell a fellow safety pro about this podcast. If you'd like to share some feedback with us, go ahead and email us at safehealth at nsc.org. To find stories such as Alan's Competent Person article, as well as the latest news about safety and health, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'd like to thank our colleague and master of sound, Chelsea Yang, for all of her hard work on the podcast. And we'd also like to say a a goodbye and a good luck to Chelsea from three of her biggest fans here at the National Safety Council. Original music for this podcast was provided by Steve Maslin. And we'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. Until then, folks, please. Stay on the safe side.